Welcome to About Scripture, a podcast designed to take the listener deeper into Scripture and biblical thought. And now, welcome to the podcast. Joseph was sold to this fellow named Potiphar. He was now a slave in Egypt. And Genesis 39 is the chapter we want to be looking at today. Genesis 39 is in some ways, well, obvious ways, a chapter about sex. It is pretty common story to, for someone who owns slaves to have sex with those slaves. Now, if you read much in 19th century, let's say, American literature about slavery, uh, you will run across this fairly frequently. If you read Frederick Douglass's uh, narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, his, his autobiography, uh, he talks about this. Uh, there's another uh, slave narrative. This one is written by Harriet Jacobs. Uh, I think it was published in 1861. And this is like the story of her life. Uh, she was born in slavery. I forget exactly where she was. She lived. Uh, she eventually escaped to the north. She, she says that when she was 15... Her master, uh, and she used pseudonyms for uh, the names here, but her master tried to seduce her. Now, apparently, did not rape her, it seems to me, if I'm reading her autobiography correctly. Harriet Jacobs does not say, as far as I can tell, that her master raped her, but apparently wanted to wanted her to give in to him, all right? And so attempted to seduce her She from the time she was 15. She resisted, she resisted. Eventually, she spent like two years in hiding in a, I mean, think uh, Anne Frank, except way worse because she was she was in an attic but like the attic of a shed that was like two feet tall or something I mean the way she describes it it's like she spends two years basically lying flat on her belly in this attic in order to escape from her master who just wanted to have sex with her constantly. And eventually when she had a way to the north, she got out of that attic and escaped to the north. But that was from the time she was 15. Of course, I mean, if you study anything about Thomas Jefferson, you'll run into Sally Hemings and the stories there. Now, it is less common to read stories about, in the 19th century American South, about white women having sex with male slaves. It's less common because it's a little harder to deal with the consequences, if you know what I mean. But uh, Sally uh, 
excuse me, Harriet Jacobs does talk about that, about sometimes cases she has known about the daughters, let's say, of the master, uh, what, seducing or requiring almost the male slave to perform for her. When we talk about that, that gets pretty close to what we're thinking about in Genesis 39. Now, Genesis 39 begins this way. It's similar to chapter 37, verse 36. Some of the information is repeated. Now, I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version here. Now, Joseph was taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Potiphar, captain of the guard and officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard. Now, if you read in the Septuagint, you will find that this captain of the guard is uh, chief cook, captain of the cooks or captain of the bakers or something along these lines, that he was in the kitchen for Pharaoh. And if you look, I've got here this concise dictionary of classical Hebrew. It is edited by David Kleins. And if you look up the Hebrew word here, captain of the, captain of the what? The tabakim is our Hebrew word. If you look this up, he'll give a few different definitions. One of them is cook. It means cook, he says in 1 Samuel 9.23. So maybe Potiphar is the chief cook for uh, Pharaoh. That That is also, I believe that is the way it is translated in Jerome's Vulgate. But he uh, Kleins also says it can mean domestic servant, and then it can mean bodyguard. So the ancient translations thought it meant cook, that Potiphar was a uh, like a chef for Pharaoh, but maybe not. Maybe he is some sort of a, a closer to a military kind of guy or a captain of the bodyguard. The point is, we don't exactly know what that word means, and it has been thought of in different ways. Philo, who was reading the Septuagint, you know Philo, an ancient Jewish commentator, uh, reading the Septuagint, which I say it in the Septuagint, it's chief cook. Philo talked about how Potiphar was in the kitchen all day long and, you know, slaving over a hot stove and things like that. He, he describes Potiphar's work in that way. But you know what? We, we also find that there is disagreement on the other description of Potiphar here. He is, according to the New Revised Standard Version, he is an officer of Pharaoh. Now, this officer, here our Hebrew word is saris. And if you look up saris in Kleins's Dictionary of Classical Hebrew... Let us see. You will find that he divides it into three possibly different words. But he first says it means high official sometimes. And then he says down at the end of the entry, rarely, he says, it means eunuch. 
I'm not going to describe to you what a eunuch is. I'm going to rely on your prior knowledge here. But that's interesting. And in fact, once again, we find in the Septuagint that it is translated actually with the Greek word. Our our English word eunuch comes from a Greek word that is eunikos, eunuch basically in Greek. The Septuagint translates it as eunuch. Potiphar was a eunuch of Pharaoh. This, the Vulgate does the exact same thing. It's, he's a eunuch. Now, I will say this Hebrew word appears 45 times in the Bible, and 12 times it appears in the book of Esther, for example. And I think, as far as I know, all translation, English translations render it eunuch in the book of Esther. You remember how in Esther, eunuchs perform a lot of functions in that book. Every time you see it, it's this same Hebrew word that we're dealing with. I don't know if Potiphar was a eunuch, if that's what the author of Genesis is meaning for us to understand, but a lot of ancient people thought he was a eunuch. You might, if if you think through that for a moment, you might think, that's a eunuch with a wife? That's strange. Philo thought that. Philo said, what's this eunuch doing with a wife? And Philo didn't know what to do with it, so he, as Philo is wont to do, he allegorized the text. He was a eunuch in the sense that he could not generate wisdom, is what Philo said. That's what it meant for Potiphar to be a eunuch. It's it's allegory. But other ancient people noticed this as well, that that, um, Potiphar was a eunuch and that he had a wife, Eusebius of Emesa. This is not the famous church historian Eusebius. This is another Eusebius. This is a Eusebius who actually knows Semitic language. He grew up speaking Aramaic, and so maybe he doesn't know Hebrew at all, but it's pretty similar. And so he's relying on that knowledge. He actually, this is Eusebius in the, in the fourth century. He says, the Hebrew, he's talking about the Hebrew text here. The Hebrew, however, really speaks about a eunuch. And how does he say that he had a wife? According to the Hebrews, it should be understood in this way, that it is a matter of a position at the service of kings. If one is not married, one cannot obtain this position. That is to say, what Eusebius is saying is that Potiphar wanted a high position in the court of Pharaoh, and it's sort of like required to have a wife in order to have that position. So he took a wife to get ahead in life. It's a business proposition. And for this reason, although he was a eunuch, he had a wife. And the passion and the passion of the woman gives evidence of this. For if she had really been the wife of a man that was intact, then she would not have quarreled thus with him, says Eusebius. One more ancient tradition on this line. In the Talmud, this is rabbinic literature, we read about how Potiphar bought Joseph. Now, you remember I I said that it was very common in societies that were slave societies to have sex with those slaves. This is true in the ancient world as well, of course. We have evidence. Let me read you a little bit more evidence here. This is uh, from the Roman poet Martial. So this would be like 
first century uh, Latin writer. Um, Men and women are free to indulge any appetites they have, and slaves are to submit and to accommodate them. Did you hear men and women are free to indulge their appetites with their slaves? In fact, in, uh, in one particular passage, Marshall imagines a male slave owner whose seven children by his wife are all actually from seven of his slaves. Now, of course, he's just making it up. This is a, a fiction, but it also represents a legitimate fear on the part of Roman male slave owners. Uh, earlier than the Roman period in ancient Greece, we have Demosthenes, the famous order, actually saying we have a particular... Uh, brand of, of um, woman, heterai, for pleasure, female slaves for our daily care, and wives to give us legitimate children and to be guardians of our households. Now, I said that there was this ancient uh, rabbinic tradition in the Talmud that commented, comments on how Potiphar bought Joseph. You remember how ancient people are with regard to homosexuality. That um, extremely common, uh, just read, uh, what should you read? Uh, Plato's uh, Symposium, which is this work in praise of love, that is to say the Greek word is eros, Plato and Socrates and other guys sit around praising the eros and their idea of sort of the, the most perfect species of person that you could have sex with. It's like a 15-year-old boy. Okay. So there's this ancient rabbinic tradition that this is precisely the reason Potiphar bought Joseph. It's in the Talmud. Jerome knows the tradition. He passes it down as well. He says Potiphar bought Joseph, according to this Hebrew tradition, to service him sexually. And according to, uh, according to the rabbinic tradition, it's actually because God didn't like Potiphar doing that, that God is the one that cursed Potiphar so that he became a eunuch after that point. Well, that gives us some, I think, ways of thinking about this chapter that conform to some ancient conceptions, both of sex and of slavery. And so... We, we are familiar with this chapter. We know that what happens with Mrs. Potiphar, that she tries herself to seduce Joseph just as Harriet Jacob's master had tried to seduce her much later. Harriet Jacobs says she was 15 years old at the time that her master tried to seduce her. Joseph is 17 at this time that Mrs. Potiphar goes after him. Of course, uh, he resists. 
Now, often I think we think of this chapter as, as uh, showing that Joseph reigns in his lust. And I think that's a good way of looking at it. On the other hand, maybe it wasn't so much about lust or desire on the part of Joseph. Have you noticed as you read through Genesis 39, who is called beautiful in this chapter? As far as I can remember, there's only one character in this chapter that's called beautiful. That's Joseph. Joseph is beautiful. Text never says Mrs. Potiphar is beautiful. I had a friend one time who thought she must not be. I don't know. Maybe she is. Maybe she's not. The text doesn't tell us that she is beautiful. I I will say I think this is the one example in the book of Genesis of sexual restraint that happens on the part of Joseph. I, I don't know if it's a chapter so much about him reigning in his lust. I do think it is a chapter showing his aversion to danger. He was in a dangerous situation here. He resists Mrs. Potiphar's advances. She accuses him of rape, attempted rape. That's the plot of To Kill a Mockingbird. Joseph was 17. Emmett Till was 14. Now, I don't want to talk about Emmett Till because it's too awful, but you think through the comparisons. Joseph, at this time, must have thought he'd done everything right. Last time I talked about Joseph, I talked about what a jerk he was. That was chapter 37. That's not chapter 39. Chapter 37, Joseph was a young punk who needed to grow up. And like I said last time, I don't mean to blame the victim here, but he could have done some things differently. His brothers hated him. They had reason. That's not the case in chapter 39. He had done everything right. He had worked hard. He had not, as Paul's advice to slaves, he had not been merely men pleasers, but he had tried to please the Lord in his service, and he had been rewarded for it. And the text says in uh, in chapter 39, verse 2, that the Lord was with Joseph. And then it continues on by saying that the Lord was with Joseph, and Joseph served God in chapter 39. And at the end of the chapter, he's thrown into prison. He must have thought that he had done everything right, and he had done everything right, and he had corrected those mistakes that he had made in chapter 37, and he had grown up, and he had done better now. And yet his life seems to still be on the downward trajectory And yet, even in prison, the very last verse of this chapter says, again, the Lord was with Joseph. 
I think we can identify with that feeling that Joseph no doubt had that we're doing the best we can. We can't think of any obvious mistakes we make, and yet things continue to go poorly in a certain period of our life. And what we need to remember is what Joseph needed to remember in that moment, and he did, as we will see as the story continues. It's not over yet. And in that particular instance, God had plans for Joseph that involved him actually being in that particular prison for a particular length of time. God was with him even then. Thank you.